Good evening, and welcome to Black Ink Red Film. I am your host, Stephen Newton, and with me tonight, as always, is... Stephen Payne, and welcome, and join us for this trip into the Tomb of the Damned. The Tomb of the Damned. Yes, tonight we have a special edition. We're talking about The Mummy. And uh, The Mummy is kind of an interesting one, because unlike all the other episodes we've done thus far, or most of the episodes we've done thus far... There was usually a novel that we would associate it with, and this one doesn't really have a definitive mummy novel. So we're just going to take a jaunt down mummy lane. It's Kitty Corner from Creature from the Black Lagoon Boulevard, I believe. (laughs) It is indeed. And so with that, let's get started. So Stephen E., we have watched several Mummy movies in preparation of this episode. How would you like this episode to play out? Which, where should we start? Should we talk about the essential Mummy movies? Should we talk about what makes a great Mummy movie? Should we just blather about our favorite Mummy? How would you like this to go? Those are all good ideas. Let me throw out another one to start. So the Mummy films, again, like you said, there is no real novel that is essential novel that launched the Mummy as a series as an iconic character in horror. Yes, there was a 1903 novel that Bram Stoker wrote called The Jewel of Seven Stars, which we'll talk about a little bit, but that was nowhere near as big a hit as, say, Dracula was or as Frankenstein was, the Mary Shelley novel. So The Mummy was really a construction of Universal Studios. Right. Um, Really started back in, uh, well, with the first film, which we'll talk about, the 1932 Mummy, The Mummy, excuse me, which uh, was directly influenced by the opening of King Tut's tomb in 1925. Was it King Tut or was it Tutankhamun? I call him Tut. We're cool with that, all right? right. So, Tut, you know, right. he we're... calls me Puff Daddy and stuff, so <laughs> we're all good. We're all friendly. Yeah. Really, you think about the mummy, you think, well, where does the mummy fit into the overall lexicon of the great movie characters? Again, since there is no, really not a great literary base for it, not even really a great stage play base for it, as was with these other characters... So I think when you think about the mummy, what does the mummy really represent as an iconic character? We talked about Dracula, what Dracula has sort of symbolically represented and why it's endured. Frankenstein, same thing. So I think with the mummy, the big question is why, you know, almost 90 years after the first time the mummy hit the screen, and of course well over a century after the Stoker novel came out that a few people read, including us very recently, why do we still care about the mummy? So I think that's one good question, one place to start. I, if I were to take a stab at that answer, I would say I think Egyptology is fascinating. It's for the the same reason that the entire mummy genre got kicked off. When you start opening up the tomb and you're seeing the exotic imagery and the mystery of the pyramids and this this culture, this rich and fascinating culture that left behind such great monuments like the last wonder of the world and whatnot. When we get down to what a mummy is as a creature and what he represents, some could argue, in fact, my friend Julian Haley, is it like, is it really just a posh vampire or a posh zombie? Depends on who was making the movie. Right, exactly. So why don't we, I, I similar to Black Ink Red Film, or our first Black Ink Red Film where we talked about Frankenstein, I honestly think that the Karloff version of The Mummy, 1932, um, actually the two films, I think he set the standard of what a mummy movie needs to have in terms of mummy movie elements but then it was like the second movie in that series uh the mummy's hand was that our second movie i believe so yes yeah that really from there 
because the Karloff mummy started as, like I said, almost like a posh Egyptian vampire. He was articulate. He could charm people. Um, he had these elements of undead, obviously, you know, because he'd been suspended for however many years. But then all the movies after that, most of the movies after that, I should say, up until we get into the more recent Mummy movies, the Mummy just becomes more of a Michael Myers lumbering, stalking killer type. That's a long-winded answer. But I would say, yeah, to, <laughs> to get back to your original point, why do we care about the Mummy? Egyptology and the fascinating locale around it. We've talked a lot in this show about location being a character and the Egyptianness of the mummy is I think what really makes this the most fascinating. Yeah, I think you're right. I think for me, there's a few things that stand out along those realms. So I think again, timing had a lot to do with it. Quick bit of trivia. The 1932 mummy film was never supposed to be about the mummy at all. It was supposed to be about Cagliostro, the Italian eccentric, let's call him that, who claimed to have lived for centuries, yada, yada, yada. Then I guess somewhere towards during the development process, one of the screenwriters, on the mummy and who was supposed to be on Cagliostro just said, Hey, what? I was actually there for the opening of Tutankhamun's tomb. Wouldn't that be a cool story to tell? Right. So they actually made kind of a last minute ish adjustment, turning in that story into the mummy. Mm. So the mummy's legacy as a movie character kind of got off to an interesting and almost an auspicious start in the last minute decision. And a lot of it had to do with the timing. Now, as far as the tomb opening goes for me, the, so all these mummy movies more or less have the similar, they follow the similar tropes, which we'll talk a little bit later about the essentials of an We can talk about movie. it now if you'd like. Well, we can come back to it, I think. But, okay. Um, they're really about a group of archaeologists, or in the case of one, the Tom Cruise film, just some guys who happen to be on the set in the day, wind up stumbling upon digging up a ancient tomb, which turns out to be a... Not a holy place where a pharaoh or someone else is buried, but usually someone who was disgraced, usually a cleric or a prince or princess. So it's a cursed tomb, and when they open up this tomb, it unleashes uh, the, the curse, which is either, which is usually the form of some guy wrapped in bandages who either goes off and kills people himself or initiates the the follow-up to the curse. So for me, a lot of what I watch these movies, I think the theme here is the dangers of exploring, one, exploring the unknown. Two, I think, this has always been a, tr a troubling thing for me with these these expeditions, is that it seems to me, and I'm not an expert in this, but it seems to me... You're not an archaeologist is what I'm I am hearing. definitely not an archaeologist. You know, I've spent some time taking classes at Yale, but I've never gone into this whole thing with archaeology. But anyway, to me, it's uh, there's always seems something just off about going to a foreign country digging up their ancient tombs and graves and taking them back and putting on display in a museum, charge people for 10 bucks a head. That's right. That always seems like a, a, a dangerous thing to do, and that's why... Commentary on imperialism or... Eh, just kind of one of those... I'm going to take your cool stuff and I'm going to take it home with me. You know, if a, if a group of people came over from another country and dug up my grandfather's grave and took his bones and said, you know what, I think we can make a few bucks off this in our museum, I might have a little bit of an issue with it. So I think I look at these that the same way. I think also with the mummy films, I think there are, especially in the original, there's some, you know, sub themes about the immortality of love. Because a mm -hmm. lot of these films have, you know, the mummy has resurrected. He got into trouble because he was trying to keep his princess alive or bring her back. And now centuries later, he's revived and wants to try to bring her back again or finds her reincarnation. I think that's a great theme. And then 
if we talk a little bit later about Jewel of the Seven Stars, I think there's some there's some interesting themes about going back into our past to discover things that maybe can help us in the present, but could also be very dangerous to us. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening within the, the subtext of these mummy stories and movies. Yeah, there there can be. Um, and we'll talk about our essential mummy movies and how at least four of the five that I'm going to bring up hit on many of those. In fact, so why don't we, why don't we transition here and then we're going to talk about essential mummy movie elements. So essential mummy movie elements. I have a list of like four things that you really need. If you want to start and make yourself a good mummy movie or a good mummy novel, you will need these four things. And we'll, we'll stick with movies for now. Sure. So the first thing is you need a great actor to play the mummy. Or I should say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because even though we have had, especially some of those later mummy movies where the antagonist was technically like this Fingali character that's controlling the mummy. Right. I think the better mummy movies have Karloff in there. What's our guy from the Stephen Summer movie? Vor- On, uh, Arnold Vosloo. Yeah, Arnold Vosloo, Sophia Boutella. The one good thing about the mummy movie from the Tom Cruise mummy movie was Sophia Boutella, I believe her name is. Um, she played it really well. So you need a great mummy actor. <clears throat> Second thing you need... The doctor, mad scientist, archaeologist who actually does something dumb to go and dig up this mummy. Because usually it's not done on purpose, although, again, we'll talk about Jewel Seven Stars, where it's done intentionally. But from the ones that that's coming to me, especially where they're accidentally stumbled into it, it's not usually done by design. Unless it's one of those revenge mummy movies where it's like, you have besmirched my family and therefore... Correct. Right. Yep. Third element you need is the mummy's MacGuffin. So the mummy needs something to go after. So would that be a mummy guffin? A, a mummuffin. Yeah. <laughs> so the mummy's MacGuffin. So the mummy needs some sort of like muse or prey. So in some of the movies, he sees the woman. It's like, oh, you look just like my long lost princess, whom I right became cursed for. Correct. Or you know, again, in the type of mummy movies where uh, it's being controlled, you know, there's typically someone who has offended somebody else and therefore they must die at the hands of the mummy for it. And then the last thing I think that really makes a good mummy film, and I guess we should add in like location in Egypt and whatnot, but Mm. um, besides that, besides location, is you need great curses. I think one of the things about mummy movies are the great curses that come into it. Either how the mummy became a mummy or some of the curses that befall those who dick around with the mummy's tomb. Anything else I missed or that you'd want to add to the list of what you need if you're making a mummy movie? I think that's a great list. I think I'm, I'm going over in my mind all the mummy movies and stories in, as you're talking about those. I, so the curse is essential because, I mean, that again goes all the way back to when, if I'm not mistaken, when Tutankhamun's tomb was oh, yeah, opened. Yeah. There were stories of curses. And yeah, I, I thought you were going to go there because yeah. I think that was part of the, like, oh, the people that were, like, messing around with the tomb started right. dying off yeah. and whatnot. Yeah, so that's, uh, you got to have that as part of it because it's really about defile this, get cursed. Right. And the curse can mean anything from locusts come and attack you or some guy in bandages stumbles up behind you in the shower and punches you right in the back of the skull. <laughs> which is most of the mummy movies. The one that's kind of odd, uh, well, not odd, but the one that's interesting, the first one you brought up about you need a great actor. I would put a caveat on that in terms of which variety of mummy are you talking about. True. So we have two key mummy 
archetypes, I guess you can call them. One is the higher level undead, mm-hmm. who's almost like vampire. That's your posh vampire mummy. Your posh yeah. vampire mummy, which was the one Karloff played in 32, which is the one Vosloo played in the 1999 and on mummy films. Arguably yeah. the one that What's-Her-Face played in the... Yeah, she was an articulate the, one. The Dark Universe mummy right, film. Right, right. Then you have the others, which are basically, they're not the facilities of the curse. They're basically the the cursed item, if you will. They're the, yep. they're the, the hired goon, if you will. In which case, it doesn't almost doesn't matter. It's always struck me funny that Lon Chaney Jr., who had some notoriety behind him as an actor back in the days, he played the mummy, I think, twice, and there was absolutely no acting required whatsoever. He was right. basically there stumbling and shambling around, apparently drunk while he was playing the role, <laughs> which worked out well for him. And and so we're going to have to... We, we just went through about 22 Frankenstein films, so I don't know which one it was, but was it Son of Frankenstein? Where, where, like, Igor is actually controlling the Frankenstein monster and sending him out to kill people. That was Son of Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. so it's more, that's kind of your mummy trope. You could reskin that to be a mummy movie. Well, yeah, one. yeah, there's basically someone has the remote control or is yeah. the guiding influence who has the golem. Because right. basically, the, the yeah, golem exactly. is really what you're looking at. The mummy's right. kind of a bandage golem, mm-hmm. I guess you can say. Flesh golem for you RPG players out there. Just wrapped up real tight and some stuff. But because really the only, in my opinion, the only time we've had the film was really that dependent on the performance of the guy playing the mummy. Excuse me, person playing the mummy is Ben Karloff, Mm -hmm. who really set this table for it. Christopher Lee played him in 59, but again, he was a variation on the Shambling Mound. He just was a very violent and scary version of it. Arnold Vosloo did fine, but he hardly had any dialogue, and his role was heavily CGI yeah. enhanced. And as was the actress in the uh, the Tom Cruise film. So, and she was fine. She wasn't the problem with the film. No, she yeah. would have been a good monster. That in film was movie. messed up. But I mean, that she me, wasn't her, her fault. Her performance was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you haven't really, really, if you look at the history of the Mummy between nineteen after Karloff's version of him in thirty two, you did not have another kind of articulate, powerful, thinking sort of mummy, I think until arguably 1971 with Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. Possibly not even that, because since Valerie Leone's character wasn't totally a mummy, you may have to go all the way to the, to the Arnold Vosloo in 1999. There was a long stretch where in a significant mummy movie, you did not have a, what was the term you used for the, the, the fancy boy mummy? The high in oh the posh vampire the posh vampire yeah, the mummy posh, yeah so you did not have a posh vampire mummy guy until for almost fifty years right right and we will talk a little bit more uh, blood from the mummy's tomb I think that's almost like a, a sub genre all the variations of sure. that novel but we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later on so those are all really good elements and and again just to be really clean I think the whole you know, you have to get some Egyptology in there. One of the things, actually, so I didn't put this in my, my list, but I would actually put it in now. One of the things to have a good mummy movie is you need the big flashback sequence yeah. of how the mummy became cursed. And so almost all of these, and, you know, there's different variations. Maybe it's a narrator talking about it. Sometimes it's a scrying pool. But you do need that element of it. And I think that's actually part of why, again, another reason why the Tom Cruise one I think fell flat is that there wasn't enough Egypt in his mummy movie. Well, no, in fact, a lot of it, well, it was in the London London sewers or or it was in Iraq. Iraq. Yeah. Yeah. 
But, well, we'll get to the Tom Cruise... Oh, gosh. We'll get to the Tom Cruise <laughs> film later, but, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's go on to our next segment, which is... What is our essential mummy viewing movies? So, Stephen E., I have a list here of my essential mummy movies, but I know you came prepared, so I'll let you start us off with your list. Yeah, what I have, I'm not even, I'll, I'll make brief comments about each of these films as I go. Your list, I think, probably pinpoints some of the more quote unquote significant ones. And, and you're going to have some very interesting entries on your list that aren't even on mine, which is cool. So th- what I have is, as I've done with Frankenstein and Dracula, I have my list of the films chronologically that were the most in line with origin sort of tales of mummy films. In other words, these are the ones that really sort of were the the critical ones in terms of retelling the story or, or relaunching, in some cases, franchises. So, of course, it all starts in 1932 with The Mummy. Really? The Mummy. Cleverly titled, which was actually that's a last-minute title change from a few other things it was supposed yeah, to be. Yeah, because wasn't that like, like you said earlier, like Svengali or It was supposed Caligari, to be Caligari, 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 so then it was actually just going to be called Imahotep or something. Anyway, it wound up with The Mummy. Now, this is Universal had just, the year before, had come off smash hits with Frankenstein and Dracula. So The Mummy, they were on a real roll with this. Carl Freund was the director who was the cinematographer for Todd Browning on Dracula the year before. So he had an amazing pedigree, and it explains why this film is amazing to look at. Boris Karloff plays our Imhotep, our Art of the Bay in his more human form. Right. And what I think is probably his, his greatest performance. It's so great. Karloff the year before, literally one year earlier, no one knew who this guy was. Mm. One year later, this film comes out. He's actually billed just as Karloff. Yeah, or he becomes a one-name guy. the uncanny. Right. Yeah, he's just he's now officially a, a market all to himself. So this is, I just quick comment on this. This is a masterpiece, in my opinion. I have it, I think, is the 15th greatest horror film ever made. It's just a wonderful movie. Was not a success at the box office, interestingly enough. Mm-hmm. So it would be eight years. Eight years later, we'd get the first sequel in 1940. There would be three additional sequels after that, none of which were, I think... None of which were nearly as good as the original, but they were good, mostly good popcorn matinee thrillers. Mm-hmm. Then in 1950... Well, wait, before you go yes. there, so so Karloff is our posh mummy. Yes. So And he will not be back in the series. We, we, we knock him off. We have an archaeologist that yes. accidentally wakes him up and is like, oh, it looks like a, a, a terrible curse on here. Hey, let's read it out and see what happens. Yep. Starting that trope that would carry on for a yep. lifetime. We get our MacGuffin when he uh-huh. uh, lays eyes on our, our femme fatale. We've got a love story. Yep. yep. It's got some great curses. Actually, it's like the scroll of Toth or whatever it is yes. in that one. So, yeah. yeah. So this one, and obviously a lot of it takes place in Egypt. So... Yeah, beautifully done in Egypt. Yeah. Quick point about the, the the love story was the love story in this has a lot to do with him, you know, finding this woman who looks an awful lot like his ancient ancient lost love, who uh-huh. may in fact be her reincarnation. This is actually a theme that's carried out through vampire films right. through the rest of time. That's true. Well. That's true. Yeah. So because Dracula didn't have this in it. The original Dracula. Mm-hmm. But this would then be latched onto every mummy and Dracula film pretty much for the yeah. rest of time. So there would be four more sequels to the 32 film, and then in 1955, and as a film historian, you should probably be able to answer this, what fate befell the mummy that did so many other universal monsters in the 1950s? What fate befell, oh, Abbott and Costello? The mummy survived, 
high doses of tana leaves, fire, gunfire, quicksand, but you bring Bud Lou into the picture, <laughs> and he's done. Yep, yep. You're... In fact, they killed him so bad, Universal didn't even bring the mummy back for 45 years. Yeah, I wonder... 44 I w- years. I wonder if they had, like, back... If, like, how we talk about jumping the shark now, which mm-hmm. maybe even younger kids don't know about. If it's, like... If, if, if like, Abbott and Costello get into your horror mix, if that's kind of like, yeah, we're done with that franchise. Well, it was. I mean, this is... And we can do a whole episode on that, but they killed off... Uh, so, Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein, I think it was 48. And it was, it's, it was actually one of the great comedies of all time. But it was so good, it killed off Frankenstein, the Wolfman, and Dracula in one fell swoop. Ugh. Abbott and Costello meets the Invisible Man. Well, good night, that franchise. <laughs> Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Thanks for coming, Doc. You done, too. Yeah. So, yeah, they were, um, they were were their careers were almost over, too. So, in many respects, Abbott and Costello lived on by killing off these now defunct or over overworn overused uh, monster franchises so yeah no one no monster on earth could survive adam abbott and costello that was the end of you yeah so that was the 32 mummy but after 1955 and the death of them at the hand of bud and lou we get the 1959 hammer studios production of the mummy right actually which was actually very colorful beautifully shot first color production of the mummy actually endorsed by universal they were cool with them doing it starring the great peter cushing and christopher lee Directed by Terrence Fisher, who really is, I think, one of the great unsung heroes of horror films. He had directed all of the major Hammer films. He directed Curse of Frankenstein, Horror of Dracula, this one a few after. He had done some great movies mm-hmm. for Hammer. This was a fantastic film, too. I mean, it really was one of the only other few that found the right balance of tone in the series. After this one, there would be three additional Hammer films. None of which were tied to this one. They were just additional. And they're all, they're all pretty good. They're certainly better than Universal sequels. Which then led to the final one of those, which is 1971's Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. Which would be the first adaptation, loose adaptation, of the Bram Stoker novel, Jewel of the Seven... Excuse me, The Jewel of Seven Stars. Right. It's an interesting film, not without its charm. Look it up. You'll see Valerie Leone, who's one of the most gorgeous women in the history of movies worth watching it just for her quite frankly 1980 popping ahead in time okay we get major studio gets involved again with the awakening Mm. so this would be the second adaption adaptation of the stoker novel again fairly loose this film's mostly a ripoff of the omen for all intents and purposes yeah we're going through a devil made me do it period yeah yeah and this one feels late 70s early 80s yeah yeah definitely and this one well 1980 was a weird year where we're transitioning in in types of horror films this film just was a didn't work very well it was out of place it's really only known as known for being charlton heston's first and only horror film and i will say he was he played it remarkably straight he was not totally over-the-top Charlton Heston. Of That's the Charlton Heston I'm used to. He was okay. The only problem was that I would say this about it. His English accent, him playing an English professor, was only slightly more convincing than when he played a Mexican lawman in, in Touch but of if Evil. if you think about what he could have done, <laughs> how he could have played that role. He wasn't the problem in the movie, right. but it was him. So The Awakening didn't impress anyone. Then in 1986... We get the third adaptation of the novel called The Tomb. The Tomb. This I didn't ver- see this one. Very low budget film. It was from the legendary, one and one of my favorite people, 
director Fred Olin Ray, who was one of really the godfathers of the 80s home video business. Mm-hmm. You might remember his other efforts, such as Scalps and Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, to name a couple. <laughs> I, I think I have seen Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. I, I have the special edition, if anyone liked one. Anyway, this one stars the amazing Michelle Bauer, Sybil Danning, Cameron Mitchell, John Carradine. This film, thing, film, it's probably its most important moment, is a scene where a guy finishes a foot chase through L.A., and for the life of me, this happens. He reaches up under his shorts and appears to pull a bottle of beer out of his taint. <laughs> it might have been called a gooch in the 80s. I, I don't remember. Say. Gooch, taint. I may have my things reminded. This was not in the novel. Made it into this film. I swear the scene actually did happen. The gooch pull. Got the it. gooch pull. I'm guessing that beer was a little warm by then, too. Mm-hmm. Then we shoot ahead to 1999 and we get Stephen Summers' The Mummy. Universal gets back into the game with a big-budget film. This is way better than it should have been, in my opinion. It's really, it's an interesting film. It's almost more of a Gunga Den film or a Raiders of the Lost Ark than it is a horror film, but it actually works. Brendan Fraser, Rachel Weisz, Arnold Vosloo in it. This would spawn two sequels and also would kind of branch off to five Scorpion King films. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, with the, you include the Scorpion King and it's like, I think it's still going strong at like nine or eight, nine films or something. Yeah, it's something. And, and if you're a big fan of Randy Couture, please, by all means, go to Walmart, drop five bucks, get the Scorpion King films on DVD. Mm-hmm. Then we move ahead to 2017 mm-hmm. and The Mummy. Starring whom? I believe Tom Cruise is in this film. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is in this film. Does Tom Cruise play The Mummy? He does not play The Mummy. Although this is one of his worst performances, I, he felt like he was under a curse while he was making this film. From a, a director who basically had done some Alias episodes in his career, and this film is a hot mess. This was supposed to launch the new Dark Universe, and instead I think this probably killed off the franchise worse than Budenloo did. Right, because we had, we had, obviously we have the mummy in this, and Sophia was great, we've said that several times. She was fine. We have Russell Crowe as Dr. Jekyll. Jekyll Because that shoehorn had to get thrown. (laughs) Yeah, I think he was supposed to be the Nick Fury of that franchise to glue everything together. But yeah, yeah. that was a bad movie. That was not a good film. And I actually had hope for the first 10 minutes or so. There were some things I thought it might do well. And then the rug just got pulled out from underneath me. And by the end of the film, I actually don't even remember what in the world the plot was. By the end of the film. Yeah, there's some daggers that they have. The MacGuffin in it is the princess, who I think is Ananka again, because she comes into it. Yeah, they have to find some dagger, and she's, like, converting Tom. But it it really is. I mean, and so we're about to go through the film, but we'll just to close this off. That film is... It doesn't know what it wants to be. Is it a mummy film, or is it a Tom Cruise action-adventure film? Because even though the Brendan Fraser version, you know, that is more Romancing the Stone, Indiana Jones than Mummy, it works, right? The Mummy is still the central theme. And I had to see it twice because it was like I really wanted straight horror. And there was a little bit too much comic relief for my taste, the first viewing. But I've, I've warmed to that film a lot more on subsequent viewings. I like that uh, the second one, I never saw, I don't think I ever saw the third one, the Tomb of the Dragon Emperor one. I saw it, can't remember a thing about it, yeah. The second one, I think, went over. I think that's where the Scorpion King gets introduced, isn't it, or is it in the second one? The second one, second one, I think. Yeah, the second one gets introduced, the second one, I think, went over the top with its humor. 
The first one I thought was a fun movie. Again, once you accepted the fact that it was going to be more in the adventure vein. And it mm-hmm. had an, an interesting villain in it. It was. I thought it was a well-made movie. That was. I would not have been upset if they kept making movies like that. So that is number five on my list. But let me. Um, do you have anything any more you want to add to that? I'll give a special shout out to another unsung hero in this film in this franchise, the Fallen Ones hmm. from two thousand five. This is a guilty pleasure. It's a site was a Sci-Fi Channel film, basically about a fifty foot tall mummy that's brought back to life. And stars, you don't want to brace yourself for this one if you haven't seen this film. Casper Van Dien. <laughs> I was going to say, just how you mentioned Casper that. Casper Van Dien. Casper Van Dien. Tom Bosley and oh. Robert Wagner. That's that's got all the hits. It's actually a, it's actually a surprisingly entertaining film, and I I have a, this has a special fondness for me. I met Casper Van Dien years ago at a convention. So for those of you who don't know, Stephen E is a huge Casper Van Dien fan. Dude's all right. I'm all all in with Casper. I met him at a convention years ago. Everybody's there talking to him about Starship Troopers. Sure. I bring this movie up, and he actually looks back, looks at his girlfriend, and says, I think we have some... In my Go into my bag. I think we have some posters from this movie. And so he pulled out a poster from The Fallen Ones and signed it for me, and I was so happy. Uh, he didn't seem like he wanted to talk about the movie very much, but he was thrilled that someone at least kind of remembered else. it. Yeah. Wow, we're, we're going into the deep tracks on that yeah, one. Yeah, but no, it's, catch that one if you can. It's a fun movie. It's, it's in the vein of the Brendan Fraser films. We won't put a transition in here, but let me... Uh, four of those movies appear on my... If you if you don't want to watch 22 films of Mummy, these are my top five <laughs> to get the quintessential Mummy experience. So obviously the first one, if you only see one, it has to be the 1932 Karloff version of the Mummy. Right. After that, my second one... Actually, Stephen, he didn't mention the sequels. He, just, he talked about the sequels, but uh, I don't know if it's the first or the second sequel. But The Mummy's Hand... So the mummy's hand is important for a couple of reasons because it brings up several of the tropes. In the 32 version, we have Imhotep as the mummy. And in 1940, the mummy becomes Karis. Yes. And Karis will go on through many of the films thereafter. So, Including the Hammer film. Yeah, exactly. Including the Hammer film. In addition, speaking of character names, that also brings up our Princess Ananka, who will show up in right. several other mummy movies. And then the last thing, which I, um, and and this was actually a little bit of a comedy movie, so we have to be careful with that one. Um, I think because of the war, we talked about this probably because of the war that was starting. It's a little bit more lighthearted. I have a theory about that. And yeah. we talked about this at the time, I think. So again, the 1932 film was a dark, brooding, very eerie, very effective film. I don't think it went over very well with people. In fact, it didn't. It was not a hit. It wasn't a critical or box office hit at the time. Partially because I don't think it had any roots in anything else like Dracula and Frankenstein did. But also because the mummy that appears on the poster in the first couple minutes of the movie is not in the rest of the movie. Mm. Karloff is in a different makeup and everything else, much to his pleasure for the rest of the movie. Right. This is sort of the same thing I think that in recent times happened with, say, Ong Lee's Hulk and Gareth Edwards' Godzilla. People were like, I didn't want something with artsy pretenses. I wanted monsters smash people. Yeah. So yeah. what I think you find when they go to 1940 in the first of the sequels, it's more mummies in, in bandages smash people. There's a lighter tone, I think, because of the time in the war going on. People didn't... There were a lot of comedy. Shirley Temple was a big hit. People like that were a big hit. Gangster films were a big hit. Westerns. I don't think people wanted dark, brooding horror 
at the time, even though RKO kind of did that with Val Luton films yeah. on a lower level. But so I think to those two elements really factored into why the the whole nature and that Karloff wasn't coming back for him. Also, he didn't want to have anything to do with that makeup again. But those are the elements I think led to the change in the way these mummies or movies were being done. That actually reminds me. So two before we get into the mummy's hand, back into the mummy's hand, two more elements that we have to talk about with the thirty-two is like that makeup is incredible. Oh, Karloff's makeup incredible. is yeah. like every bit as iconic as I mean that well, he's that's why he's one of the as Frankenstein as Dracula as creature from the Black Lagoon. You know the when he's in that first early bits um, in that whatever that paper mache stuff is that he's in is is just movie Hollywood classic Hollywood gold well it's the great legend of, of Universal Jack Pierce who had done that makeup the Wolfman makeup later on the Frankenstein makeup he was really one of the great heroes of that era because he did the makeup for all those characters right. and they're all iconic and, and just the standard even today the other thing from that movie which I don't think gets enough credit but when, when you look up the mummy Karloff on Wikipedia or Google image search or any of those things, that piercing glare shot yeah. that they have of him, like where his eyes are lit up, right, right. that, that charm. And they use that shot about three or four times in that movie, but it is, it is definitely a dichotomic image of the Ardith Bay character in the Fez. Right. Giving uh, the, the whammy to. <laughs> the to pin, what do they call it? The pin light cam. Cause yeah. they did that with Lugosi and Dracula also, I think. Right. That, yeah, and with him, it was just, you, every time you see that shot, you're like, ooh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so the last thing I want to talk about with The Mummy's Hand, um, 1940, is it introduces our Tana leaves. And so that will yes. be similar to vampires and garlic and werewolves and silver bullets. It's always interesting to have things that make these creatures vulnerable or whatever. Tana leaves are used to control the mummy. So it's a couple of drops of concentrated Tana leaves will bring it back to life and a few more and you can start controlling it like the flesh column that it is. And isn't the rule, wasn't the rule of nine drops and you basically turn them into an uncontrollable killing machine? I don't know if any of the films ever got to the nine drops though. That was yeah. disappointing. It's like no one ever went in DEFCON 4 with the Tana leaves. Right, we no one ever went Tony Montana with a pile of coke and actually, with the Tana I leaves. Don't, know if any of the later ones i don't think any of the stephen summer movies brought in the tana leaves i don't think so because either. he's articulate so these well, are a, actually he's, a, he's so your posh mummy yeah so posh mummies don't need no, tana leaves but no. golem mummies you need tana leaves although thinking about it, it would have been kind of funny if uh, again if arnold arnold, yeah, arnold Vosloo's mummy had like the stack of tana leaves like Tony Montana with his pile of coke on his desk. <laughs> right. That would have been that would have been awesome. That would have been awesome. Okay, so we talked about the next one on our essential. So I've got like five movies here. the The next one on our essential viewing is the nineteen fifty nine Hammer movie for right. all the reasons that we just talked about. Yep. It's in color. It's gothic. You know, we've got a great villain. I think it's. Uh, I think we have a Chorus in this one. Yes, I think Chorus is our mummy in this yeah, one. Christopher Lee. The episode we need to do is the Universal versus Hammer version of. I'd love movie. to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in 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 most of these movies that we're talking about, there is Universal's version of the creature, and then like twenty years later, you get Hammer's version, and they're equally beautiful and spectacular in different ways. And the Hammer, in this case, the Hammer Mummy movie. Not to spoil a future episode, people will forget by then anyway, including yeah. us probably. <laughs> I think the Hammer Universal, uh, the Hammer mummy film because i think in part was endorsed by universal at the time closely ties in storyline to the original universal films 
than maybe the like the Dracula and Frankenstein adaptations did. So yeah, it's actually the Hammer Mummy is very close to the Mummy's hand. The yeah, it definitely would have fit movie. into that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the controversial one on my list <laughs> is Don Coscarelli's fabulous Bubba Hotep. Oh boy, yeah. It is a mummy film, right? Bubba Hotep. Uh, and they do some interesting things. We do have several of the essential mummy movie elements. You do have a mummy, although because it's more of a stalking killer mummy, it's, it's actually a different one. It's more like a, a presence that you have to deal with more than somebody controlling it. The mummy in Bubba Hotep. And actually, the mummy in the Bubba Hotep is really just a MacGuffin in and of itself because it's really right, about yeah. the journey that... The, the fabulous Bruce Campbell playing. <laughs> and Ozzie Davis. And Ozzie yeah. Davis. God, that, I, I just love that movie. It is dark comedy, but it is touching and it is heartwarming. And it's about age and loss and regret. And, and that movie all tied together with the, the mummy as it, what's going to weave the, the plot together. But definitely a fabulous movie that everybody should watch. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. It is probably one of the most surprising movies I've ever seen too. And just how poignant and how beautifully executed the film is. Yeah. No, if you haven't seen Bubba Hotep, whether you're a mummy fan or not, go see Bubba Hotep. It's just a magnificent movie. We, uh, Stephen and I, while we were drinking a couple weeks ago, we were having a conversation about Don Coscarelli is the director who also gave us phantasm. And if you, watch the the conversation we were having is you never would have thought the guy who brought us phantasm could bring us bubba hotep but with the the charm and the intimacy of something like bubba hotep similar to like i never would have expected sam raimi who brought us evil dead could bring us a simple plan i don't think people talk about a simple plan the terror of that film Um, well it's also amazing what happens when you have a couple extra bucks to work with and you have a really really good script a lot of credit has to go to joe lansdale's story oh i love joe lansdale yeah i mean i and this i think was a very very close adaptation of the story yep it's just a wonderful story and again no one well on top of that i never thought you'd get a performance like that out of bruce campbell that's true (laughs) i mean he could play elvis forever and i'd be happy we should do a joe r lansdale episode at some point as well that'd be Um, fun and then the last one we talked about is Brendan Fraser's The Mummy. Yeah. Uh, it's got a different tone, but it's actually a well-executed action-slash-horror film in the way that I think Tom Cruise was trying to capture and failed miserably. So those guys should just go back and rewatch Stephen Summers, who obviously was a fan of those earlier Mummy movies and introduced many of those elements and... I have no idea what was going on in that guy's head as he was directing it, but you can tell when a movie is made from a place of love of the source material. I don't know a lot about Stephen Summers. I believe I read he was a huge fan of the 1932 film, which is interesting because that's certainly not the movie he made, but he obviously had a love for it. He was actually... So he made one of my favorite films that no one else in the world cares about or likes a couple years earlier called Deep Rising, Mm, which mm -hmm, is this wonderful mm -hmm. underwater film with these tentacled monsters attacking this cruise ship, Treat Williams. I remember that, yeah. That's a fun movie. Everybody else hated it, but I I thought it was a fun movie. And he was actually selected after the studio apparently rejected Clive Barker, George Romero, and Joe Dante. Oh, wow. So he he picked up a gym, and again, I think he did as good a job with that as he can, and it's it's a fun movie. There's I have no bickering whatsoever with the the Brendan Fraser, the first Brendan Fraser film. So there you go, people. Those are your mummy movies. Those are your mummy elements. Let us know if you think we missed something 
essential or if we missed any plot elements, we'd love to hear your get your voicemail. Sorry, I just want to throw one more quick point in. Forgive me if I'm going off. Well, no, we, no, can, no, we're go- we can edit if I've gone off track here, but I literally don't think we're going to see another Mummy film for another 45 years after what Tom Cruise did to it. Well, not what Universal did to it. Right. The Dark Universe did to it. But if we did, if I were the Universal studio head and I was said, hey, make another Mummy movie, I had this idea of watching the first, the early scenes of the, the 2017 film. I would love to see Ridley Scott make a mummy movie. I don't think he would at this point in his career. But if you think about it, Alien, very heavily influenced by the mummy. Alien follows a lot of the tropes that the alien did, except the love story part of it. And, I mean, there's sort of a curse of sort. There's certainly exploring places you don't want to be. Um, There's a lot of gothic element to it. And I think it would be really interesting to see what would happen if he made a film, especially if he was able to tie into the novel Jewel the Jewel of Seven Stars, with its elements of, hey, let's resurrect this mummy because this creature that outdates Christ and everything goes 5,000 years has knowledge of things that can maybe help us be better today. I think Well, that's our be, Jewel of Seven Stars, right. McGuffin, so let's yeah. not go there. Oh, but, okay. Yeah. But, but yeah, I think really Scott would be a guy who could make an outstanding mummy movie if he really wanted to. So I think if I were to pick who to resurrect the mummy, first you'd have to decide, am I going to make posh mummy or am i going to make lumbering mummy right actually you know what what we didn't talk about is one of the other great things that makes a good mummy movie is its vintage appeal Mm -hmm. in fact i was just interviewing my girlfriend about this a few minutes ago so i'm going to cut that in right here i am here with estella castillo who just happens to be my girlfriend and therefore an easy person to interview estella in your opinion, as someone who's seen maybe a couple of mummy movies, what makes a good mummy movie? I like a vintage monster. Mm. So the old movies that I had seen seemed a little bit more, it just it felt a little different than, you know, something with Brendan Fraser or Tom Cruise. Those, those mummy movies just didn't do it for me. I really, really felt that there was a little bit more substance in if you will, in an older movie. So you like the like the original Karloff mummy. Right. Scratchy screen and Got it. Got know. it, got it, got it. Okay, well thank you so much for that. And as you can hear, that was so that was Estella. And what you hear is that one of the things that makes a great mummy movie is the the old timey feel, which is I think another reason why Tom Cruise's didn't feel good. It was a contemporary film. Yeah, center in the war. Yeah. <laughs> So if you're going to make another, if you were, if you wanted to remake an action mummy movie, I think, um, and I'm going to have to look this off, I'll look this up offline, but the woman who did, who directed the Wonder Woman films. Oh yeah. That would be Patty Jenkins. Cause she can really do a classic period piece, make a good action film, clearly knows how to do mm-hmm. the mix of charm, special effects, character versus special effects, I should say. I guess if you were going to do dark brooding horror, like my go-to guy right now is I want I want every movie to be made by Mike Flanagan. And having just recently watched Haunting a Bly Manor, again, he knows how to do period, he knows how to do brooding, but those are more ghosts than than lumbering killers. So I don't I don't know. I would have to I'd have to give that some thought. I think it, boy, I think his dance card's full for a while, I would hope. I think Leigh Whannell would be an interesting choice, too, after yeah. what he did with The Invisible Man. Right. He may actually find a way of making it contemporary and still get it to work, but you and Estelle had a point. I was looking at even going through the list of all the, the really, with the exception of the Tom Cruise film and The Tomb, 
I think all of those mummy films we talked about, well, Bubba Hotep also, but all these yeah. films were period pieces. Yeah, exactly. So I think we need to give, we're, we're getting into the thin hours, we're 45 minutes in at this point, but we should give Jewel of Seven Stars a little bit of love. So let's cut into that. Stephen E., give us a little bit of a summary of Jewel of Seven Stars, please. Well, Jewel, uh, the Jewel of... I keep getting it wrong, but even in some of the movie adaptations, <laughs> they had the title wrong anyway, but it's technically the the Jewel of Seven Stars. Right. Really has a lot to do with this archaeologist who, with his cohorts, had uncovered this long-lost tomb, contained this princess who'd been... They discovered had been dead for over 5,000 years, had apparently had some magical qualities about her, renowned for her black arts, her, black, her skills in the black magic. They bring many artifacts back back to England. <laughs> to his apartment. To no his less. apartment, no yeah. less. Must have been a nice place. Years later, a curse appears to be coming to life where he winds up comatose. Something appears to be trying to get into the vault in his apartment, basically trying to cut the key off from her his hand, or cut his hand off with a key on it, to access the vault to get into whatever's inside it, which we discover is... The Jewel of Seven Stars. The Jewel of Seven Stars. And which belong to this princess. And really the upshot is that after our, our group of heroes start to understand what's going on here, it turns like his daughter, who was born at the same time the tomb was opened, I believe, and whose mother died at the time of giving birth, she may in fact be the reincarnation of this princess. Spoiler alert. The last act of the of the story is really these folks getting together and deciding, you know what, if we can actually bring this princess back to life, she holds secrets that date back millennia. And she can probably, I mean, she it's an interesting conundrum that we don't know what happens when we bring her back other than she has enough power to squash all her heads like grapes. Right. But she has secrets and she has knowledge that can help us in the future, make us a better planet and world than we were before. Yes. She may even hold some of the answers to some of these religions. And the third act is really about them trying to bring, uh, you know, going through these means to resurrect this princess, despite the fact it could be a good idea. It could be the worst idea in the history of mankind. The bits I'll add to that or edit to that is... Please do. This story is half Frankenstein because the the mad doctor, the guy who's asleep and comatose, who's the MacGuffin through the first two-thirds of the book, he actually knows the secret that Princess Tara, who's our mummy in this she has actually planned for her resurrection. So all yeah, of these yeah. things that they're gathering, the lamps, the jewel, is all about meticulously been um, placed by her, and a little bit of the omen in that regard, because oh, yeah. she has planned for somebody to resurrect her when mm-hmm. all the planets align. And so he now knows that he's this guy. The first two-thirds of the book are almost like the NPCs, like trying to figure out what the hell is wrong with this guy, why right. is he comatose? And it's because he's ass deep into this. The last third of the book is Jurassic Park <laughs> in that our narrator of the of the book, is this a good idea? Should we be doing this? It seems the father knows that his daughter has been inhabited with the soul of Princess Tara, but he still thinks it's a good idea to raise this woman from the dead for all the benefits that you just mentioned anyway. So he's a little bit Frankenstein. I was going to say, it's a, that's very Frankenstein in itself, yeah. Yeah, so he's a little Frankenstein into, yeah, this is a good idea, and of course you would have wanted this, and, I mean, it was written by Bram Stoker, and it was written, I don't know what the year was. We'd 1903, I think. Yeah. 
the whole the way women are represented in it is technically the daughter margaret i believe her name is the character she's becoming self-aware and she's showing a little bit of independence in this tara is represented as a queen hatshepsut style egyptian in that she was cursed and you know that's why her name so there's a lot of hatshepsut in fact i'm going to pause here to say we were going to get dr karakuni actual egyptologist someone who actually knows a little bit about egyptology and she's agreed to be on the show but given that she hasn't read any of these novels or seen many of these movies i'm just going to have her on in a later episode and we're going to talk egyptology and how some of that stuff's influenced pop culture based on that but clearly because she wrote a book about the the woman who would be queen about queen hatshepsut she would know about that has she seen Bubba Hotep? See, that's my thing. I don't think Dr. Kara has seen Bubba yeah, Hotep. We'll have to talk about that later. We're going to dance around that subject. Yeah, exactly. Fine. So, yeah, that's why we're we're going to have her on a separate episode. So, what did you think of the mummy's hand? <laughs> I'm a professor at UCLA. What are you asking of me? Um, should should Bud and Lou have been able to get rid of the mummy that easily? Right, right. Tana leaves. Were they actually there or not? So, yeah, Jewel of Seven Stars. So, interesting novel. Similar to Dracula, a are really, in my opinion, and again, it's 1903, it's a long time since then, but a bit of an anticlimactic ending because the whole resurrection at the end is sort of a non-event, actually. It's not a great novel. It's act- Well, it's actually not even a very long novel, interestingly enough. I think it turned out to be like 180 pages, maybe, which is perfectly fine with me. It's not much of a horror story at the end of the day. There's some interesting elements into it, uh, some interesting ideas. There it's is some, some creepy imagery. There's some creepy imagery, although it's not not nearly as much as as much in Dracula. Yeah. Um, oh, definitely nothing on no. par with Dracula. Yeah. And yeah, again, the ending sort of just kind of goes blah. But quick note on that was that there are two versions of the ending. The original yeah. published ending was very dark. It's not that much different, really, but it was deemed pretty dark. The publisher made him change it to a slightly more upbeat ending. If you can, <laughs> yeah, they all die at the end versus they don't all die at the end. Yeah, really, literally. That, yeah, yeah. thank you. That's about it, really. Yeah. Um, there's like maybe two paragraphs difference, I think. But if you can and you want to read it, you can actually find editions of it that have both endings included in it. Six of one, half does the other. Doesn't really make that much of a difference, frankly. But you know, it had the weight of Bram's name, Bram Stoker's name, and so we have, mm-hmm. like you said, three at least three adaptations of it in yep. film. Yep. There is this soul that is trying to be reawakened and take a present day body, which is kind of a theme in some of the mummy movies. So I can see the attraction. It's kind of a, a, a subgenre of mummy film. It's in, in my yeah. Opinion. It's not a cl- it's not your conventional mummy story, but it's an interesting story. I hope they could still do an okay movie adaptation about it if anybody set their mind to it. You could not, as we saw with the three adaptations I mentioned. You really could not do, I think, a pure adaptation of it. But then again, Dracula was not a pure adaptation yeah. of the novel either. So it could be done if you capture those elements. And again, this is where I can see a Ridley Scott. Because really, I, I read this and I think what Ridley Scott did, the ideas he had in, say, Prometheus. Yeah. I'm thinking if he could channel some of that for a, a, an adaptation of this novel, it could probably work. Okay, well, I think that's it for all of our mummy talk. So why don't we pause here and talk about mail and stuff that's coming up. All right, so we have some emails. Mr. Payne, can you read us our first email, please? I will. Actually, there was one I guess we missed that someone had sent us a while back, and my apologies to whoever the author was, unless I'm completely making this up. Someone had written us regarding the Frankenstein show, talking about some of the other themes found within the novel and the movies. So 
We apologize if we missed that one. But yeah, there are a lot of different rich themes that we couldn't cover all of them in our 45 minutes or an hour we had together. But uh, there's volumes of stuff you can read on the novel. Get on YouTube. There are plenty of courses that have been uh, lectures you can you read on the novel. So there's a lot of rich themes and ideas with Frankenstein. So yes, thank you for bringing those up, um, Mr. or Miss Writer. And please continue to, to write us and, and listen to us and... We're always glad to hear additional opinions and input on the content we talk about. And we will try to do better about remembering your name and your content. Well, we really need to get a better, you know, secretary or something. I think my daughter is supposed to be our social media director, so let's blame Corey. Yeah, she's totally getting a pay cut now, isn't she? Mm -hmm. All right, but going on to letters that we actually found. (laughs) So, regular and faithful listener Eric Lucas wrote us uh, regarding our recent podcasts. He has a few things we'll touch about in here real quick. So regarding Frankenstein, uh, one of the things he, he writes in his letter is, in defense of our negligent protagonist, Victor Frankenstein, he didn't tell the people of his creation when they were hanging the maid because he didn't believe that anyone would believe him or his story about creating such a monster. Am I remembering that right from the novel, he asks. That is my memory, but it still doesn't make him any less than a dick. I think that was the official label I gave him. I agree with that. I, I was trying to remember back the specifics of the novel, but yes, I think he's remembering it correctly, and you're correct, Victor is still a dick. I would have to crawl back there, but I think through most of the novel, he is thinking that people would not believe him, and I don't know what if they actually talk about the consequences of that, but he doesn't lift a finger to try to actually say... There might be another culprit out there that I have some information on. And this is why this is another one of those elements that's conspicuously missing from or rewritten in the film adaptations, too. Mm-hmm. Second point he makes is regarding Frankenstein is that um, I couldn't help but notice that you excluded any mention of Fritz or Igor or even Igor. And I tell you what, this was actually an interesting miss on our part, yeah. talking about the legacy of Frankenstein. So... Fritz or uh, Igor or Igor, or, he's not in the novel, right? so no such character exists. He is, however, in the Fritz, played by the great, Dwight, the great Dwight Fry, excuse me, is in the first film. And then the idea of an Igor or Igor would really follow through. He'd be like the, it would be an iconic image, right? right? Including having his own cartoon later on. So I, I traced back, well, where did this character even come from? And I think, from what I can tell, it went back to one of the original stage productions in which it was determined that they wanted to have an additional character, one who was going to be kind of a go-between between Frankenstein and Henry Clerval. He was right. kind of a double agent. He was just this kind of oaf who was helping the doctor, but also feeding information on what was going on back to Henry. Also, I think he served the purpose of, when it was decided that Victor or Henry Frankenstein later on, was to be a more sympathetic character, they were able to offload some of the bad stuff he was doing onto this crazed lab assistant. I would say, given that our podcast actually has an explicit rating, which I don't leverage nearly enough, I think I'll just exercise it tonight. That was just a fuck-up on our part. We should have... Yeah, it it was just a miss. And you're right. When we talk about a big part of this podcast is the pop cultural, lasting pop cultural influences, Igor, Igor. I mean, the name Igor is... Yeah, it's it's, it's (laughs) iconic. Yeah, exactly. So good catch. Our miss. Absolutely. Thank you, Eric. Another question he had or point he had was that regarding our... This goes back twice, our Friday the 13th podcast. I firmly believe that Halloween gets a pass on exploiting women, 
solely because Deborah Hill produced the film. A basic, and, and you know, this is something we talked a little bit in terms of that whole genre and the exploitation of women. Right. I think I had mentioned, one of us had mentioned, and Sarah that wrote in a letter about this. Yeah. Right, right. That Halloween has interestingly gotten a pass over the years. He may have a point about Deborah Hill, but I think it actually gets a pass because it was a very well made movie. These other films, you can't necessarily accuse of that, accuse them of being good movies. Halloween, because it was an artistic success, I think it's a pass for a lot of those elements. Really, the all the ripoffs, the Friday the Thirteenth, and the other films that followed after that were not as well made films, and they really were more exploitive. Even still, I do think Frank Halloween gets a pass, and I do really think it's because does it get a pass? I mean, how does something? Um, how do we well, how do we gauge something gets a pass? I'm sure if anybody like us does an an expose on exploitation of women in horror, are we saying it doesn't come up? Well. From a data standpoint, I can't support one way or the other. Yeah, but, exactly. Um, I will say this: years ago, I shortly after, well, really in the height of the slasher film craze, Siskel and Ebert had dedicated right, an entire one-hour-long yeah. episode to this. And I remember sp- I watched it fairly recently. They really lambasted all these other films: The Friday the Thirteenth, okay. My Bloody Valentine. They actually mentioned Halloween, and they have the scene where Jamie Lee Curtis is squirming and defending herself from inside the closet. Yep. And, they all, and they basically give that a total pass, saying, oh, look, she's a strong female, she's doing this. It's like, well, but same thing we see in all these other movies. And they and, and Ebert even, I think, mentions, well, this is a very well-made movie. I do think Halloween, well, that maybe it doesn't get a complete pass. It doesn't get held to the, held to the mat as often because I think it is a superior, superior-made film. Okay. My opinion. Deborah Hill's involvement in it, I don't know. I don't know that that had as much to do with it, but it could have, I suppose. So here's here's the here's the call out I would make to our listeners. If you are, especially if you're a woman, like we don't need any more like dudes talking about and here's where exploitation's happening. If you're a woman and if you have an opinion on this, I would love to hear from you and we'll read your letters on the air like we did with Sarah, or we can have you on the air. We'd love to have some guests. And I'm just pointing out the hypocrisy of, I, I think Halloween is a great film. But I do think it gets, in my opinion, is from what I've read and seen over the years, it does seem to get a strange pass well, for committing the same quote-unquote sins that these other films would do later on. At some point, we may or may not do an episode of great films that were made by problematic directors. Cough, Rosemary's Baby, cough. Oh, yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. On to the final one. Um, he has a couple, Eric has a couple suggestions for things we can do in future podcasts. He brings up Hellraiser. Which I just saw the other night. There I would love to do Hellraiser. So Hellraiser definitely will keep that on the radar. Also, he brings up Interview with a Vampire. Uh, yeah, I'm. That would be that would be wonderful. I've never read the book. I could I could change that. We actually talked about this off air, but we should because this is the Mummy episode. So Anne mm-hmm. Rice did do Ramsey's the Dam, correct? So, and I think there was actually a couple sequels to that. I don't know. I actually read the novel back when it came out, and I could tell you nothing about it, like many of the novels I read over twenty years ago. So we're in the same boat. I did not read it, and I can't tell you anything about it. So either, there you so. are. So I read it, and <laughs> I can say I read it, and I couldn't tell you a thing about it because I'm old and my memory is bad. Okay, one more letter from my end, and you, and you have a couple. So, um, good fan Mike Sheridan wrote us, giving some praise. Thank you. Who for just that. sent me a 3D model of an adventure I wrote? Wow. Yeah. More on that at the end of the show. Cool, getting swag. Right. You know what I got from our listeners? Nothing. Nothing. I suspect that trend will continue. Anyway, Mike writes after hearing the Fight of the Thirteenth episode. 
wondering what would be your superpower beatdown matchup for slashers fighting each other, like oh. in Friday, Freddy versus Jason, and who would win each match. So I love the idea. I've actually seen other sites on Facebook, horror sites on Facebook, do this kind of thing, and they never go into great depth. It's just like, oh yeah, enough likes said Freddy won. Yeah, we could do something like that. So here'd be the thing. the challenge is. You've got slashers like Jason, who basically is undead and he's pretty much immortal. And you got poor Norman Bates, who's just kind of a guy. He's <laughs> just a dude. Dude. A bad guy. Right. So some of the seating may not go well early on. But I think our challenge for this, Mr. Newton, would be if we did this, we would have to, it's not just who do we think would win. I think we need to book matches, wrestling style, figuring out creatively how these, these matchups would go to figure out, for example... If this was one of the seedings, if we had Jason versus Norman Bates, I figure Norman obviously is physically at a disadvantage here, but he's cunning. Right. And he could leverage the fact that both he and Jason have a mommy complex, and he could actually use having taxidermized Jason's mother, somehow use that to distract Jason, lure him out to the big lake where he buried poor Janet Lee. And right. then dump him in the water, something like there's There should be some creative things we could do. Yeah, there. so, you know, so I, I like where you're going with this. And I know dick about boxing or wrestling, but, you know, I, I know there's things called, like, heavyweight versus welterweight. But to your point, you could have, like, mortals with no supernatural ability, yeah. right? So you could get Norman Bates versus Jack the Ripper, as yeah, an example. Yeah, yeah. You know, you or Leatherface. Some... Leatherface is just a dude, really. Leatherface is just a dude, right? So we could do some of that, and then we've got mortals with a little bit of supernatural ability. So then you get Mike Myers versus Carrie as an example. Oh, that would be interesting. Yeah. Yes. And then you've got like these immortals. So now you've got Freddy Krueger versus Pinhead or the Hell Priest or whatever name he goes by now. <laughs> we could do Chucky versus the doll from Trilogy of Terror. Or yeah, or Burn Witch Burn, right? So there we go. So yeah, so I, I think there's a blog post there somewhere. I don't know if we could do a whole episode on it. We'll, but... we'll figure something out with that. I think it'd be fun to kind of play yeah. around with that a little bit. Did you get all the mail you wanted Those to talk are the about? Ones I okay. got, yes. so Thank we, you both to Mike and Eric. We got some tweets here. So Aaron Robinson, who actually did some of the art on one of my last adventures, when I when we tweeted about that we were doing the mummy, he asked, and we talked about this earlier. Uh, Aaron asks, are mummies generally mindless, semi-intelligent, or completely sentient? In my mind, I'm trying to categorize them as something other than a posh exotic zombie. Does intelligence give them some of their own category? And as we talked about, there are two flavors of zombie or uh, mummies. There's articulate undead. So there's like basically a vampire, a different flavor of vampire, Egyptian vampire style mummy. And then there's flesh column mummy, which I think is more controllable zombie. Where does a mummy, the posh, so you have the posh mummy, you have the, uh, you know, lord, vampire lord. Where does, where does a lich far out fall into that? So it's a great question, probably another episode, but I think yeah. it, it all comes into the creation process, right? So the mummy is created by some cleric cursing some dude. Right, so the right. mummy doesn't want to be a mummy. That's right. that's yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a big part of that. Yeah. If we go all the way back to the source material, the original vampire, Vlad, is created when he goes to that school for the mystic damned, like the the, the horror Hogwarts. I forget the yeah. name of the school, but we, <laughs> yeah. we researched it. And then what was our third category? Um, the mummy lich. Oh, and, and lich. Lich, yeah. lich, is, lich, I think you're into the Hellraiser category of I'm messing with magic, trying to extend my life. So, okay, so that, I, oh, gotcha. I want okay. to be a creature. I'm doing this myself versus I was cursed, it was a price I had to pay, or I'm trying to 
be something. So I, I think that's gotcha. Okay, that yeah. that's the category I'm going to put that in. All right, so I think that's it from viewer mail. Um, again, we are blackinkredfilm at gmail.com. Anything else we want to shout out? Any miscellaneous horror stuff that we want to talk about before we close this up? Well, speaking of Frankenstein, so today we are recording this on November 21st in the wonderful year of 2020. Today is the anniversary of the 1931 James Whale Frankenstein. Oh, nice. Yep, released nice. on this day in what, 89 years ago. Wow. So that's some longevity. That's been around a while, and here we are still talking about it. From my horror ingestion, I currently watch The Haunting of Bly Manor because, again, I'm a huge Mike Flanagan fanboy. Different vi- Not a different vibe, not a completely different vibe from Haunting a Hill House, but still just spectacular and worth watching. So go and check that out. And I'm currently reading Max Brooks' excellent de-evolution Bigfoot. It's half disaster novel. It's half Jurassic Park. It's got yuppie people that go to live in utopia and then things start going wrong. Um, I'm only about quarter of the way in, but so far it's it's a great follow-up. I know he's written some stuff since then, but it, in my mind it's a great follow-up to World War Z. So I'm, I'm looking forward to maybe having a Bigfoot episode and talking about this one on that. Yeah, I'm gonna. I, you've convinced me. I, I have it. I should start reading it too. I'm a huge fan of World War Z, probably his most prominent novel. Yeah. So I, I look into digging into de uh, evolution. Let's see, devolution. De evolution. Are we not soon. men? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think that's our episode. Everybody, thank you so much for listening, for sending in the mails, for sending in the tweets. And I don't know if we have an actual topic for the next episode. We're kind of winging it at this point. We've gone off of seasons, but a couple more drinks. We'll figure it out. Yeah. We're starting to talk about just stuff we like. Uh, Thank you so much. And we'll see you in about a month. Happy holidays. You've been listening to black ink, red film with your hosts, Stephen Newton and Stephen E. Payne. Music was created by Matthew Murdoch. Please send any comments, questions, or requests to blackinkredfilm at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you for listening.